Hey, thank you for tuning in to the Relove Podcast. This is Pastor Rico. Our hope is that today's message adds life and power to your journey as you grow. Thanks for joining us. God is good. Would you say amen? amen. You know, uh, Relove is um, it's like a home away from home uh, for me and my family. We've got so many different ties uh, to this ministry, to this church. And I wish um, our sister was here to see her legacy being lived out in such an amazing way. As I look out into the congregation today, this is such a beautiful thing to see. The diversity, the love, the camaraderie that is here today. I like to say, you know, um, if that's okay with you, uh, Relove is home, I just visit every other church. Is that all right? Is that all right? And so I just want to thank your pastoral staff, your team, uh, Pastor Rico and, and, and Pastor Tuipala and the rest of the pastoral staff. Just, a, just an amazing work, what you continue to do here at Relove. And um, I can't be more blessed to be a part of what God is doing in this space at this moment. And as uh, Sister Paula had mentioned, I look forward to August and spending some time uh, with each and every one of your families. And so if you haven't yet, uh, go ahead and register, get your, get your, your payment in, uh, get, get, invite a friend, uh, make sure you come out because it's going to be an amazing, an amazing time in the Lord. Look, my, my, my task uh, that was given today was to speak on win the day, reclaiming your future from a, a broken past reclaiming your future from a broken past. And I thought it'd be good that we would start off in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because I believe at the very end of the day, the very premise for us to be able to reclaim some stuff of the past is through this word called love. And that being that is part of the name of your church, Relove, I, I just thought it'd be good with the play of words to let you know that there's a pagan love and then there's a biblical love. But the biblical love that we find in 1 Corinthians 13, it's just going to be the premise and what we're going to build off today. Is that all right? So if you have your Bible, before I pray, I want to take you through what Paul says in this chapter of love. It's the, the wedding chapter. If you go to a wedding and they don't read this chapter or this verse in, 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 in any part of the ceremony, it ain't a real wedding, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, um, and we'll, we'll go ahead and read through it. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And if you're there, would you say amen? amen. All three of you. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you would turn your, your, your Bibles or your tablets, it'll be here on the screen as well. But the Bible reads this, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass and clanging cymbal. And although I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, though I have faith so that I could remove mountains but not have loved, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and it is kind. Love does not envy. It. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Thinks no evil, bears all, no, all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love never fails. Father in heaven, today at this very moment in time, I simply pray that you would bless your word, that it achieve its purpose and what you have sent and not return back to you void. In Jesus' name, amen. 
throughout my ministry, I had the privilege of doing a lot of premarital counseling. And, uh, you know, sometimes when I'm sitting in these spaces, I'm, I'm asking myself and I'm asking the Lord, I'm like, who's going to counsel me? And I'm just so privileged that I have the opportunity to sit there and empower and equip and pour into other couples. And one of the first things that I do uh, in my very first sessions is this. I have the couples take a piece of paper on their own and I have them sit on two separate parts of the office. And then on that piece of paper, I have them to create a T chart. Right. And so they sit there on both sides of the, the office. They, 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 they make their T chart. And, and, and before we get started, I say, okay, now here's the reality. Some of you come here for counseling, but maybe after this counseling, you probably won't want to marry each other anymore. And I said, I would rather you make that decision now, right, than get into it with kids later and decide, oh, this ain't going to work. And so I said, so, so in order for this to really work, y'all got to be honest with yourself. And also you got to be honest with God. Because if you can't be honest with yourself and you can't be honest with God, uh, this relationship thing just isn't going to work. And so they, 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 they sit on both sides. We, we pray. And I say, on this T-chart, I want you to put on the left side um, good qualities, good traits. And on, 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 on the right side, uh, instead of good qualities, I want you to put dysfunctions. Turn to your neighbor and say, dysfunction. Good thing God functions in the dysfunction. Would you say amen? amen? And I said, so you got to be honest. I want you to write down all the great traits you have here on the left. And you know what? They seem to, to go to town when, 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 when you're talking about good traits. Uh, but when you start to get to the dysfunctions, it was like, okay, on this side, I need you to be honest with yourself. You need to write what, what's all the dysfunctions, not only just in, in, in your own personal journey, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to your parents' dysfunction, your family's dysfunction, your grandparents' dysfunction, your great-grandparents' dysfunction, because that dysfunction that you're dealing with today has been passed down to you from generation to generation to generation. And so as they, as they, they gather all these dysfunctions and good traits and then I have them come together and then we spend the next hour comparing what are your good traits? What, what are those dysfunctions? Like for, for me, I could put down on my side, I'll be honest, let's start with, with me. I'll say, you know, we, we have a good worth ethic in my family. Uh, we're, we're a family of faith. We, we, we love the Lord. Uh, we're, we're compassionate, we're kind. We have servant leadership, we give. Now on the dysfunctional side, we have a tendency to, to, to be addicted to, to substance abuse and alcohol. We have, a, we have a tendency towards violence. We have a, a tendency towards pride. We have a tendency, and so you, you've got to understand that, that as you compare these two different good traits and dysfunctions, the reality is this, if both of you deal with a, a, a dysfunction that leans towards the tendencies of addiction, it is more than likely that your kids are going to be struggling with addictions. Why is this important, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. It's because when you go through these different traits, we've got to talk about what is this, this, this legacy that we're trying to pass down uh, from, from, from ourselves uh, to the next generation. And for many parents and couples in here, you've got to realize you can either pass down these good traits or you can pass down these dysfunctional traits. But the question to you today is simply this. What traits, what values, what things that, that, that are you willing to work on in order for you to pass down to the next generation? 
I believe that if you want to win the day, you've got to be able to win the past. Because some of us are trying to win the day without even addressing the past. This word restoration that I love using, this biblical term of restoration is God bringing us back to our original and intended state. God has an original blueprint for your life. He has this original blueprint and plan and purpose for your life. But the only way that you could get to that plan, the only way that you could deal with your intended state is to deal with your present state. And so my sons, you know, um, it's crazy when they started to go to college. And let me share this with you. Like when your kids go to college, um, it's like kindergarten all over again. <laughs> they might be big and 18, 19 years old, ready to go to college, but you feel like you dropping that kid off to get into, you want to go sit in the class with them again. Right? And so when, when you drop them off to college, let me tell you, some, some of us think, oh, they come home and then they go again. It gets, it does not get easier. We've got a senior in college and every time I got to drop this brother off, Right? I've got to hold back the tears. But one crazy thing I realized about my sons is this, is that they, they both attend colleges out of state. And whenever they come home, um, they're at the house for maybe a week or less than a week. And then the entire summer, like these dudes, I don't know what's, what's, what's wrong with them, but they decide to go back to summer camp and work at summer camp all summer. And then they come back home after summer camp for a week and then they're back off to college, and I'm like, yo, normal people would come on a summer break, come on somebody, and come kick it at La Jolla or Coronado Shores or Mission Beach and go surfing, but y'all brothers wanna go up to Pine Springs Ranch. And you go, you, 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 you go, you go to school then, fall, winter, spring, come home for a week, then you work all summer, and then go back to school. And I looked at my wife, I said, that's crazy. Well, where, well, what's wrong with these dudes? Where do they get this from? And she said, they get that from you. <laughs> She's like, that, that work ethic, that servant leadership, that, that, comes, that comes from you. They, they get that from watching you. Don't blame them, blame yourself. <laughs> now, I would love to sit here and, and give you all the great traits that, 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 that I pass down to my kids, but can I tell you, they not only get those traits, they get all the other traits as well. You, you, you see my sons, they got a short temper, right? They do have a tendency towards aggression. They have, they have a tendency towards pride. And so if I'm going to be real, I've got to be able to manage what is the difference between what are these great qualities and what are these dysfunctional qualities. You see, legacy is basically something that is passed down to the next generation. And I love, I love this because Auntie Ellen for those of you who don't know Auntie Ellen, she, she's uh, one of the uh, leaders of our church. She, she, she writes this quote that I want to read to you. It's called, the children often inherit disposition. And this quote says this, as a rule, children inherit the dispositions and tendencies of their parents and imitate, come on somebody, imitate their example so that the sins of the parents are practiced by the children from generation generation and so what legacy family do you want to leave behind for the next generation that is coming up you see uh, th there's this movement that we're a part of it's called the 2% movement it's based off the percentage of Pacific Islanders indigenous native people that are represented in our church in North America and so when I went to this I went to this e-huddle this is evangelistic series I went there and I came to realize that nobody in there looked like me 
that, that nobody that was at this platform or this table uh, not only looked like me, but had the same experiences as me. None of them spoke my language. None of them understood the context of where I come from. And so we said, let's create this, this ministry to create a platform for the 2% that normally does not have a voice at this level. And so in the past two years, we've been able to develop this, 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 this experience, this inspirational platform for Pacific Islander, indigenous native people to come and find space to be spoken to by people that look like them, that act like them, that eat like them, that understand why mayonnaise is the best thing next to sliced bread. See, only the Pacific Islanders here say, oh yes, oh yes. Everybody else said, that's nasty. And so understand this, when I'm talking about legacy, I'm talking about something that when we pass down is not gonna rust or is not gonna fade away because it's tangible. Some of us pass down mortgages, payments to our kids, vehicles and houses, but the, the, the legacy that we're talking about to winning today is passing down things that have kingdom value. And so when I'm with my kids, my kids, I have them in my car every morning from the house uh, all the way to the school for about 25 minutes, I got them hostile. Hostage. Come on, somebody. Hostage meaning they can't get out the car. Hostage meaning they're going to hear and listen to whatever I say. So on my way from the house to the school, I spend 25 minutes pouring into my kids. I spend 25 minutes telling them who they are and whose they are. I tell them they're valuable. I tell them they're smart. I tell them they're special. And right before they get out the car, I tell them they're part of the 2%. And I'll tell them, represent. And they'd be like, 2%, dad. <laughs> because these are the kingdom values that I want to instill into my kids is that when they grow up, they're not, they're not left with a bill. They're not left with a mortgage. They're left with something of kingdom value that is eternal. And so my question is this, if God is our heavenly father, then what legacy you think our father wants to pass down to you, his children? Can I say this, that when Jesus left before he went to the cross on his way to the cross, he actually gives us a snapshot of what it is that he wants to leave behind. And I'm sorry, it wasn't the Sabbath. I'm sorry, it wasn't the spirit of prophecy. I'm sorry, it wasn't the state of the dead. Not that those don't matter. But biblically speaking, what did God want us to know prior to his son going to the cross before he left? I'm glad you asked. John 13, 35, 35 says this, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Can I suggest to you today, family, the legacy that God wanted to leave behind is based on love? Period. Not love and the Sabbath. Not love and the spirit of prophecy. Not love in our understanding of the state of the dead. Not that those don't matter, but it's this. It's love, period. Every theological, right, understanding Doctrine should be built off of love, period. Yes. Come on. Then you build a premise yes. from that. It's not love and. It's love, period. Build the Sabbath off of that. Build the spirit of prophecy after that. Maybe that's why we've got so many Adventists and so jaded from the church, because everything is built, built on love and. Meaning that there's a prerequisite for you to be loved. Yes. Well, wow. Well, wow. Well, wow. 
Maybe that's why Relove exists. Because church hurt is real. And Relove is a space where it's love, period. Let's build off of love. Let's reintroduce what a biblical love is about. Let's reintroduce not a pagan love, but a biblical love. Okay, can I just, just pause here just for a brief moment? Because some of you might ask the question, well then pastor, what is a biblical love? And I'm glad you asked and I should charge you, but I'm gonna give it to you for free. <laughs> so a biblical love is, is this, simply this. Biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that acts on behalf of its object. Sounds so nice, better say it twice. Let me say it again, get your pen and paper. A biblical love is the act of the will, meaning that love is a choice that is accompanied by emotion, but not driven by emotion. Because a pagan love is strictly driven by emotion. Let me pause and give you an example. That's why when people come to church and their church hurt by somebody else in the church, they think because they got hurt by the church that God hurt them. So we don't come to church because the church hurt me, therefore God hurt me. And so we've based our love strictly on emotion. You know how dangerous a pagan love is, especially in this day and age? That means our kids are running around thinking that if I experience God's love, then God is present. But if I don't sense or feel God's love, that means that God must not be existent. Yes, yes. So a biblical love is the act of the will. It's a choice. It is accompanied by emotion. There's emotion in love, but it's not driven by, by that emotion. And here it is, family, that acts on behalf of its object. And that object is you. Pastor, I need, I need some biblical references. I'm glad. Just going to give you one. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he made a choice to love at that moment. Because when he went there, he was asking the father, is there any other way that this, this cup can be removed from me? He's like, I, ain't, I don't want to go to the cross. Lord, is there any other way? There was anxiety. There was emotion all mixed up. So much so, the Bible says that when Jesus started to sweat, he started to sweat drops of blood. From, he was in such anxiety of, of not wanting to do this. But because love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that responds on behalf of its object, his response was this, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. A love that is passed down through generations to generation to generation is more powerful than any addiction that's passed down from generation, that's, that's more powerful than any hate, any dysfunction. The, the cure to that family is, is the premise of, of love. And the crazy thing is this, like we're all good about love. I mean, we all about, let's champion love. You could go, you could go to even a non-believer, somebody who was an atheist, they would say to you, yes, love, that's a good thing. I would also believe that 1 Corinthians is also, is also mentioned in John 4, 16, where the Bible, 1 John 4, 16 says this, and we have known and believed that, the, that God has for us, that it says this, that God is what? Love. And he, he abides in love and abides in God and God in him. So, so it is safe to say 
the love that we're talking about, and I know I'm beating a dead horse, but you got to get this through your thick skull because I didn't understand it and realize it until I experienced for myself. And sometimes explaining love doesn't really hit than when if you experience love. And I want you to know this, that love, right, that, that, that God is the very essence and the foundation of love. First John 4, 16 says that God is love. And that, that's a great thing, right? Because I would say that, that, that in our society, huh, it makes sense in the world when, when we talk about love because, because when we talk about we're love, we're like, love all, affirm all, stand for all, support all, do all. You don't, you, you don't even have to be a believer to agree with that. And because everyone can agree with that, culture would suggest that not only is God love, but that love is God, can, can, can I just pause for a moment and tell you that, that that's not biblical? Like for, for I know it's just semantics and, and we're just trying to move words around and uh, we've got to be, we've got to be re really understanding of what, what it means when the Bible says that God is love because love is God is different than God is love. Well, how so? I'm glad you asked again. Because in our culture, to say love is God I would suggest that if we were to say that, that that means that we become the de definition and the describer of what love is. And can I tell you, <laughs> that's not our job. We don't get to define what love is. We don't get to describe what love is. God can only, and maybe, maybe that's the reason why so many of us have been hurt is because we, we've, <laughs> We've gave the definition of love. We gave the requirements of love. We've, we, we've given examples of love. And every example that we give, we always come up short. And that's why love is not God, but that God is love because God is the only one that can define what love is for us. God is the definer. God is the descriptor. God is the one who displays what love is. Can I say this too, that you don't have to go any further to understand who love is than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the very definition of love. Look no further than the son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. As a matter of fact, I love it that when you read 1 Corinthians 13, you can actually exchange the word love for Jesus. If you wanna get a good description of who, who Jesus is, exchange it with love. If you wanna get a good description of what love is, exchange love for Jesus in, in, in scriptures. I believe that it would read if we were just exchange those words, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not loved, I become a sounding brass and clanning cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries, all the knowledge, though I have faith so that I can remove mountains, but do not have Jesus, I have nothing. And although I dispose all my good to feed the poor, and although that my body had been burned, but don't have Jesus, it profits me nothing. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up. Jesus does not behave rudely. Jesus does not seek his own. Jesus is not provoked. Jesus thinks no evil. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. But Jesus yes. never yes. fails. Never. Jesus never fails. You see, the beautiful thing about this text real quick, so we just break this down just a little bit more before we move on, is this, is that in verse 7, this word that, 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 that the love bears all things, it hopes all things, it endure all things. I believe that in order for us 
to pass down and redeemed a legacy of love. Everything is pinging on this, this one statement here that's found in verse 7 that says that love believes all things. Like this is such a powerful statement and I'm wondering like why is this in the middle of all these other texts that suggest that, that love does all these things. And right smack in the middle it says but, but love believes all things because I believe that in order for us to understand that love endures, it has to be pinging on the fact that we've got to believe in love. In order for us to understand that it bears all things, hopes all things, that we've got to understand that it has to believe all things. You see, the one thing that this verse tells us about God in regards to love is that God's love is not cynical. God's love is not cynical. This is important, especially for us coming out of two years of a pandemic where everything is cynical. Like we've been, we've been bombarded with so many dis and misinformation that medical practices, we're, we're cynical about our medical staff, uh, our medical professions. We're, we're cynical about the health department now. We're, we're definitely, and I hope you are, cynical about politics. Come on, somebody. Uh, we're, we're cynical about policies. We're, we're cynical about wearing a mask and not wearing a mask. We're cynical about kneeling or standing. We're, we're cynical about all sorts of, cynical about the police. I could have told you that 20 years ago. <laughs> and not that there's bad police out there, it's the fact that I've been through some stuff that made me cynical about police. Yeah. In my own personal experience. Got some good brothers in the police force, but we, we've been cynical about all things. Matter of fact, can I keep it real? In the past two years, you become even more cynical about your own family. All right, because I be trolling your Facebook pages. Come on, somebody. <laughs> trolling your political posts and you going at it on a hundred different comments with your family, and at the very end, I'm unfollowing you. <laughs> we cynical. But what the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians, is that love believes all things would suggest that God's love is not cynical towards us. It's not cynical towards us. And here's why, because we have an issue of loving people because of what we think and what they've done in the past and what we feel people might do in the future. Let me say that again. We are cynical about people because of the experience that you had and hurt that you've cause and experience in the past that has skewed your vision of what they might do in the future. Let me, let me give an example. Like some of y'all dating somebody who just got over a bad relationship and just because homeboy treated you bad don't mean that every single guy after him going to treat you that way. Come on, somebody. Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. So you're cynical about the relationship because you think, yo, this brother did this to me. Every brother like that. Let me tell you, there's some really good Simone brothers out there. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Can I also say that there's a really good pastor here that is single as well? I'm just going to hang that up right there. You go ahead and pick that up if you need it at the end of the day. There are some good brothers out there. Cynical. Cynical because, because what they've done in the past, therefore we've already have a mindset that they will continue to do that in the future. And so that's why it's hard for us to love. And, and when we do love, it's a cynical love. It's, it's, it's a love that's based on what they have done and what they might do. And so like this marriage counseling thing, there's another thing that I do with couples and, and I try to change their vocabulary because words are important. And so there's two things that I tell couples they need to get used to is like, never say the word, you never. Oh, I should charge you double. 
but I give it to you for free. See, all the men in here that just scored points were the ones that pulled out their phone and said, honey, look, I'm taking notes. One thing I tell couples, it says, never say you never, and the other is never say you always. Because you never, you never is a cynical statement that would suggest that you are basing your love on them from what they have done to you in the past. You never do this. You always is suggesting what they might do in the future. And so what I did was this, like when I was writing the sermon, I said, oh, I need some good you never like statements. And so I asked my, my, my wife, I said, honey, you know, hypothetically speaking, like, why don't you share with me, you know, some you never statements so that I can, you know, write down from, from my sermon examples. And, you know, my wife's like, sure. I didn't realize I was setting myself up. She was like, well, I got one that you never listen to me. I said, oh, that's a good one. You never take me out. I said, oh, that's a real good. <laughs> Hold up. It's starting to sound a little bit personal. She said, oh, no, no, I'm just BC, honey, BC. Before you met the Lord. Come on, somebody. She's like, you never clean up after yourself. You never cook. I'm like, okay, now I know you talk about me. And I said, I'm not even sure I want to ask her to give me some you always statements. I said, honey, give me some you always, hypothetically speaking, not about me, just about you. Oh, it's never about you, honey. He's like, uh, you always shut down when we're in an argument. All the women in the house said, amen. You always leave the toilet seat up. <laughs> Cynical love. It is based on you never and you always. So when you say love believes all things, it doesn't mean that, that, that family that I'm gullible. Like It's not suggesting and it's not speaking in regards to doctrine or truth. When you read 1 Corinthians 13, it's based on a relationship. And so what it says that it believes all things in the context of relationship, it means that love is not cynical. It bears all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things because it believes all things. When Paul says love believes all things, it means that I believe the best in you right now. Come on, somebody. It means that when I look at you, I have a redemptive vision of you. The possibilities, it's not cynical. I have a redemptive relationship with others that suggests that I could love you, not based on your past, not based on what you're about to do, not based on your future, but based on the fact that I love you right here, right now, at this moment. Love believes all things. Means that I love you, not based on your past, not based on your future, but right here, right now. Relove. God loves you in the now. God loves you right now. Here and now, I love faithfully. Come on, somebody. Not tomorrow, not next year, not next month, not next week. Consistently, constantly, permanently in love with you right now. Right now. And right now. And this moment. And guess what? This very moment. And this moment that just went by, this moment now, this moment here, right near, right now, this second, this millisecond loves you. Loves you now, not based on last second, last minute, last hour, right here, right now, loves you, continually loves you, permanently loves you, consistently loves you, 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 period, loves you, right now, right now. Guess what? 
That's right. Right now. I can keep going. This could be the rest of the sermon. Right now. Right now. Right here. Right now. Next week, I'll be at the next church going. Right now. He's still loving you. He's still got you. He's still holding you. He's still holding you. He loves you right now. I don't know how much I can emphasize it to you. Right here. Right now. God's love is not cynical. It's not based on what Meshach did last week or 10 years ago. It's not what I'm about to do when I leave church, but it's based on the fact that he loves me right here, right now, right now. Luke 17 talks about some leopards. Jesus supports this reality that he loves in the now, not based on the past or the future. On the fact that when he heals 10 of them, only one returns to say thank you. And Jesus has this conversation, he says, was, were there not 10? He knew there was 10. You see, nine of them were healed, but one of them were saved. I missed that one. Some of us come here for the healing and the deliverance, but not the development. Some of y'all delivered, but you're not developed. You want to stay in that same rut that you came in. Didn't Jesus know that only one would come back? Then why heal all 10 and not just the one that was grateful? Because God's love is not cynical. It wasn't based on the fact of what they did in the past. It wasn't based that the nine that he did heal was going to leave. It was based on the fact that he healed them and he loved them right there, right then, in the now. Right there, right then, in the now. See, in closing, family, there's something about leaving a lasting legacy of love. Because God is in a business not of just reestablishing a legacy, but also redeeming a legacy. Let me tell you something. If you are worried that God cannot redeem your legacy because of what you've done in the past, let me tell you. God restores the now. If, if you're thinking there's no way that God could ever forgive me for some of the things that I've done in the past, can I, sow a, can I sow a word in your heart today? If you're here today and says, you know, I've broken so many relationships. I've broken so many promises. I just have left a trail of damage relationships and things in the past. I've said some things that I could never take back. I've done some things that I could never take back. And yet, yet, yet God tells you this. I want to sow this in your heart today. If you don't get anything else out of today, I want you to know this. That the Bible tells us in Joel that I will restore to you the years. that the locusts have eaten. The word is this. You want to win today by allowing God to reclaim a broken past. It's understanding this passage that is, that is filtered and guided and led by love that God says it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. He says, you've done some things. The locusts have eaten those things up. And he says, but, but me, God, Yahweh, the, the one true God, the almighty God, he says, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Whenever I read this text, I am baffled because there is a suggestion that is mentioned here that God can do something that nobody else can do. 
You see, the thing is this, he says, I, I, I understand that we have a tendency to, to so I've, I've seen people restore furniture. I've seen people restore heirlooms. I've seen, I've seen people, I've watched stuff on A&E where people are re, restoring homes. I've, I, I, I've seen people restore 83 Cadillac coupes. Come on, somebody, with the 13700 spoke gold knockoffs with a gangster white. I've seen somebody do that before. But I have never, ever experienced anybody being able to do one thing that God can do. This text here suggests that God can restore time. God can restore time. A couple years ago, I took a class by Dr. Reggio, one of our professors at Andrews University. And he teaches family therapy. And so I thought, man, this would be a great class for my congregation. <laughs> they need it. <laughs> Little did I know that that class was for me. And, and I would suggest this is, yes, we need Jesus, but some of y'all need therapy too. <laughs> Pastor needs therapy and Jesus. They work hand in hand at times. So I sit in this class, right? And so he gets us in these small groups and we're sitting in a circle. And um, he asked this simple question. He starts off, he says, I want each of you all to give me a perspective of how you view your parents. And man, I couldn't wait to go in. Only for the simple fact is because my parents, man, like if, if you, if my family knows, like from the very beginning, man, my mom, my dad, they, they were there for me for, through thick and thin. I got locked up, my parents were there. I needed bail, my parents were there. I was addicted to drugs, my parents were there. I needed payment for the mortgage, my parents were there. I got locked up, my parents were there. I crashed their cars, my parents were there, you name it. And I'm talking from a very young age. You, you think these things I was doing as an adult. Suave knows, I took off at the car when I was like 10 years old, left it up on top of the street, my parents were there, they knew. I mean, I was doing stuff back then that, man, nobody would want their parents to go through. And so since I've been saved in, in almost 15 years, man, I, I can, can't think nothing more than to tell people how great and how loving my parents were, how my parents were just the, the, the best parents, the best model of love for me. And then he asked this other question, just broke me. He says, how do your siblings view your parents? And I said, oh man, they love them. They're, man, my parents are great. They would say the same thing that my parents, and I started to go down the list. And I started to realize they weren't always there for them. They weren't always at my sister's games or her recitals. They didn't always have money for the things that my siblings needed. And as much as I would love to say that my siblings have the same perspective. They don't hate my parents, but they felt the neglect from my parents because they had a troubled child in the home. And I robbed my siblings from the greatest experience they could have as a childhood of having a present parent that was engaged in everything they did. And because I chose to take this path, because I was wilding out, because I was gang banging, because I was tweaking, because I was selling dope, my 
Parents spend all their energy, their focus, their faith, their time, their money on me that my siblings by default got neglected. And I broke in that class. And the Lord led me to set up a meeting with my siblings right away. Because I realized in order for you to heal from your past, you've got to own your past. Some of y'all trying to heal from something you haven't even owned up to yet. Because there's one thing that God cannot do. And that is also to change some of the repercussions that happens from decisions that you made in the past. So I gathered all my siblings together and we sat down and I shared with them what I should share with you. And I apologized, we cried. And I would love to say that our relationship is perfect now, but no, we're, it's a work in progress. But we got a better understanding. Because at the beginning, I was like, Lord, how do you redeem all the years of gang banging? How do you redeem all the years of addiction? How do you redeem all the years of broken relationships? How do you redeem all the tireless nights that my mom would walk the hallways wondering and asking if her son was gonna come home alive? How do you restore that? And then I read this text. The Bible tells us God would restore the years, the locusts, the gang banging, the tweak, the meth, the alcohol, the abuse has taken. I thought because my past, God wasn't able to redeem and restore my relationship, but I found out. You know how God restores time? God restores time by redeeming your experience with Christ in the now. God restores the past by restoring your experience. He restores the time, not based on what you did in the past. He restores the time, not based on what you're going to do tomorrow. He restores the time by enhancing and redeeming the experience you have with him right now. That's why loving you now is all part of him redeeming you in the now. Because family, I, I don't know about you, but there's a song that says, better is one day in your courts, come on. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your presence. Better is one day in your heart. Better is one day in your house, in your father, in your casa. Better one day in your spirit, in your bosom, in your hope, in your faith. Better is one day than thousands elsewhere. God redeems your experience in the now. In a prophetic day, it's 100 years. Come on, somebody. In a prophetic minute, in a prophetic second, in a prophetic hour, God redeems time by redeeming your experience in him now. Because my mom will tell you this, she'll stand on this pulpit and she'll say, the day, the second that you gave your life to the Lord is far greater than the 30 plus years you were out there in the streets. The very second, that one second that you decided to give your life to Jesus, far greater in the 30 plus years you was out there in the streets. And every day that I'm alive in Christ is added another great experience for my parents and my mom right here, right now. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, right now. The experience that you have with Christ today 
can be changed, could be redeemed by the simple fact if you receive Jesus right here, right now. You want to win today? Receive him today. You want to receive him today? Receive him right now. That love that is right now. That love that will love you whether you stand up or not, whether you come up to the front or not, it still loves you. That love that's not based and conditioned on what you did in the past, what you did in tomorrow, but it's based on him loving you right here, right now. I don't know about you today. Before I pray, somebody here today struggling what they've done in the past and questioning their relationship with Jesus based on that. And I want to pray with you today. If you want to receive him just for today, just for the now, before you leave this place, if you, if you want him to redeem the time, the experience, I'm just going to invite you to come to the front before we pray. Is anybody here brave enough? Lord, I want you to redeem the time, the experience that I'm in the now. Anybody here today, just come to the front and pray for you before we leave. Anybody? Experience right here, right now. Anybody, just come. Anybody can relate to the story. Just need, just need some redemption. Just right here, right now. God bless you. Not based on tomorrow or any decisions next week. Just right here. Just for the moment. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Anybody else? Young, seasoned. Anybody else? Just come. Yes, right here, right now. Anybody? The mistake that we make in every church, and this is why some, some of us are Adventists, are very appalled when we make appeals like this. It's because we believe that just because you've been in the church for 20 years that you're saved. We have this crazy idea that just because you've been coming to church that you're good. And so we get appalled when the pastor comes and makes an appeal because I'm good. Today. I'm not talking about yesterday or last Sabbath or the Sabbath. We're talking about today, right here, right now. Is there anybody else? Just today, today, right now. Praise the Lord. Anybody else? Before I pray, I don't want to leave anybody behind. Just come. Anybody else? Young, old, seasoned. I'm not going to exhaust the spirit, but if the spirit of God is tugging at your heart, if you think I'm looking at you, yes, I am. Just come. Just come. It's all good. Let's just start with the prayer. Wherever the Lord leads after this, we'll let the spirit move. That's not my job. My job is to call and to appeal. So if you just want to do it right here, right now, let's, let's just start now. Anybody else? Anybody online? If you're watching online, yes. you want to come up to the, to the front or just stand in the presence of your living room or your family, do so at this moment. Anybody else? Is there one more? One more? Anybody in the back? Watching in the mother's room? Anybody? Anybody else? bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you and bless you. Father, at this moment, your spirit, Lord, is, is, it is at work. And Father, th this here, this, this response was for the simple fact that we acknowledge that your spirit has always been within us. And that God, as your spirit leads and directs, I pray, God, that uh, 
this moment of deliverance is followed up by a moment of development. That God, that we could reclaim the past by understanding the now. That God, you redeem the now. The right now, this second, and this second now, and this second. And better is one day in your presence than thousands of years without you. And so Father, for every person, individual that is standing here before you, I pray a special individual prayer and anointing over every person here today. That God, that not only would you fill them and direct them and lead and guide them and give them clarity, but Father, that you would put unction in their soul to respond to the continual leading of your spirit. Father, whether that is being somebody who wants to be baptized, somebody who wants to start Bible studies, somebody who just wants to really dedicate their life to you, Lord, somebody who wants to get involved, somebody who, who, who's like, you know, I'm tired of being stagnant, Lord, I want to be part of Relove Ministry. Whatever the case may be, Lord, meet their specific needs. You know why they came up. And so, God, we are careful to offer them, to lay them at your feet as a living sacrifice, and the God that you would do and have your way in them the way that you see fit. And that, God, above all, let them know that you love them in the here and in the now. These things we pray in Jesus' name. May everybody say amen and amen. Amen. Why don't you give somebody a hug, a high five next to you. Praise the Lord.